is from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 42, the Gospel of John. It's on page 864 in the Black Bible you are handed, page 864. Let's pray before I read. For the beautiful day, for your word given, written, and in your son Jesus, we give you thanks. And we ask that you will open our ears and our eyes to hear and see the truth you have for us. Amen. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and what it is that is who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, The hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. 
They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say, Four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, Look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. The word of the Lord. Some of you like to follow along in the manuscript, so Sylvia has copies of the manuscript. You can get her attention as she passes by, and you can have your own copy. What a great story! We just heard. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, maybe yours too. As the story begins, Jesus has to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee. Anybody know how far that is? About 60 miles, 100 kilometers or so. It's a long journey. The road passes through a kind of set-apart area where the Samaritans live, called Samaria, and we find Jesus at midday sitting down to rest outside the Samaritan village of Sychar. And while he's sitting there, a woman comes along to draw water from the well that's there. Wells are pretty important places in that climate. So that's how John sets the stage. But what does he set the stage Four. The most natural thing in the world would be that it sets the stage for absolutely nothing. According to the normal rules of that culture, that time, that place, the woman would come, the woman would fill her jars, the woman would leave, and that would be the end of it. No one would speak. And Jesus would keep his distance until she left. John tells us, a little aside comment, that Jews 
did not share things in common with the Samaritans. That's an understatement. They stayed as far apart from each other as possible. There were a lot of reasons why Jews and Samaritans didn't share much. They shared a long history of religious disagreement, religious and cultural violence, and mutual hatred. That's not too strong a word, hatred. And they didn't share much besides that history. Both groups were actually very religious. They worshipped essentially the same God, and I don't mean that in the common sense that people sometimes say everybody worships the same God. They worshipped the God they named as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they didn't acknowledge the same collection of scriptures as authoritative. They didn't acknowledge the same primary place of worship as the proper place. And those disagreements were not merely academic. The Samaritans once deliberately polluted the temple in Jerusalem so that the Jews would not be able to keep the Passover one year. The Jews responded by killing Samaritans. So the two religious and cultural identities had a lot in common, but it was the differences that mattered much, much more. The two groups naturally and normally kept apart from each other and despised each other. Now this doesn't map precisely onto the racial dynamics of 21st century America, but there are certainly a lot of similarities. You can label the other in a way that stereotypes them and that hardens your own opinions about them, that defines the way people relate to each other. Oh, he's a Jew. Oh, she's a Samaritan. Oh, he's a Latino. She's a Latina. He's an African-American. She's an Asian-American. One more little wrinkle in this already lumpy fabric. Jewish men considered Samaritan women to be in a perpetual state of religious impurity. So it's not surprising. In fact, it's, uh, I mean, it's not just surprising. It's pretty breathtaking that Jesus asks this woman for a drink. And she certainly gets how breathtaking it is. How is this that you, a Jewish man, and that's very clear in the more gendered Greek language, you, a Jewish male, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? Aren't you kind of lost, sir? Aren't you forgetting who you are and who I am? Now, there's so many ways that this conversation could go off the rails, but it obviously doesn't. Why is that? Well, I think you have to give some credit to the Samaritan woman, but you have to give some credit to G Jesus, too. And that's what I want to focus on. Do you notice how Jesus comes into this conversation from a position of vulnerability? He offers humility, not superiority. He asks for something that he needs, a drink of water. He needs a drink. That also means he's willing to accept whatever it is that she offers him. That's what really surprises her. And that's probably what makes the first opening in her heart towards him and towards everything he has to offer. She knows how Jewish men think. She knows how Jewish men feel about Samaritan women. She knows how visceral a, a revulsion that he probably feels towards her. I think that it's hard for us to understand that. I think some Jews felt about religious impurity the way some of us feel about germs 
and disease. You know, you don't, when, when it's flu season and someone <coughs> sneezes into their hand and then says, hi, I'm Mike, you don't really want to take their hand, right? The hardest bite of food I ever took was when I was in Egypt as a tourist way back in the 1980s, walking along the Nile River. And there was a woman eating a little picnic lunch with her kids. She had some little bits of pita bread and some feta cheese. And, and to my surprise, she, she offered me some. And it actually looked pretty good, except for the flies crawling on it. Not hundreds or even dozens, but enough and really persistent. And Egypt seemed so dirty to me. And I, I didn't really want to eat the food that she held out to me but I understood the effort she was making to cross the cultural boundary, and I thought I need to cross my own boundary. Just a little taste. I mean, I'm not trying to pretend that suddenly I could enter into the life of this woman whose life is so very different from mine. I'm just trying to illustrate how hard it was for me to just reach out and take a little crumb of bread and a little bit of cheese. And that's kind of what Jesus does. He asks for a drink. He showed his willingness to cross a barrier, to enter in. And even when she put the spotlight on that barrier, he didn't, when she named that Jewish man, Samaritan woman thing, he didn't back away. He was already across the line, ready to receive what she had, ready to offer what he had. I'm ready to receive what you can give me, and I hope you can receive what I have to offer you. And, and this is where it starts to get a little bit riskier because now Jesus isn't just acknowledging his own need. He's all, also acknowledging her need. People get more defensive about that. It's not the place to start. Your need is the place to start. But when you start talking about other people's needs, they get defensive. And you can see this woman's defensiveness on two levels. The first is more or less personal. So you want to give me living water. Well, you don't seem to have a bucket. And the well's pretty deep. So where do you plan to get this water? I got my bucket right here. But the real defensiveness is on the level of her group identity. You pay attention to the next sentence, the level of her clan, her tribe, her race, the kind of identity and the history that goes with it. Our ancestor, Jacob, gave us this well. Jacob really belongs to us, not to you guys. Are you greater than Jacob? Is that what you're saying? Are you claiming superiority? Are you saying that your people or better than my people. This is a really delicate moment in the conversation. And it's interesting because as readers, we know that the answer is actually yes. As a matter of fact, Jesus is greater than Jacob. How does this gospel start? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made His living among us. And that's one of the characters in the story. So yes, He's greater and for one reason, and only one reason, Jesus' people are greater than any other people. Because the Messiah, the Savior of the world, comes from Israel. Later in the conversation, later, Jesus tells her salvation is from 
the Jews, God's promise to Abraham from your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But this is not the moment in the conversation to assert that directly. So Jesus kind of deflects the question. We're not actually talking about the same thing. We're not talking about the same kind of water. We're not comparing a Samaritan well with a Jewish well. We're comparing water that satisfies with a little, uh, for a little while with water that satisfies forever. So yes, Jesus is saying that he has something better. He has water that you can drink, and if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty. Again, that water doesn't come from any well in this world. But now Jesus really has her attention. She doesn't want to keep coming to this place, and especially not at this time of day to keep getting water every time she needs water. Have you ever thought about why a woman would be coming out to get her water at noon? When people in Sychar planned out their daily activities, how many of them do you think plan to go and fetch their water at high noon when it's maybe 110, 115, even 120 degrees Fahrenheit? Carrying water is hard work. We have indoor plumbing, but imagine if you had to get all the water that you use in the course of a day from a common well and carry it back to your house in a container. You know how much water weighs, right? Gallon weighs how much? About eight pounds, one liter, one kilo. How many kilos of water a day do you use? How would you like to carry that? And if you had to do that, would you do it in the middle of the day, in the hot sun? Wouldn't you get up early in the morning before it was hot? Or better yet, go in the evening so that the next morning you would have water from the time that you woke up. Nobody else is at that well except Jesus and the woman because that's the worst time of the day to get water. And that's why this woman comes at that time of the day because nobody else is going to be there because she doesn't want to deal with the way her neighbors treat her. She doesn't want to hear the things that they might say to her or see the looks that they might give her because of the kind of woman that they thought she was. Jesus is willing to look not just at that, but through that and see the person. And that's the moment. Yes, he gently puts his hand on the deepest wound in this woman's life. He doesn't pretend it's not there. Go and call your husband and come back. But before the conversation is over, Jesus makes it really clear that he knows everything that's going on in her life. She's had five husbands. Now she's with a man she's not even married to. And maybe that's someone else's husband. He knows all that. And it might look like Jesus is judging her. But what he's really doing is offering her the freedom of repentance. He's offering her the chance to change the script for her life. The script that says, for the rest of your life, you have to hide and sneak around and live in darkness and live in insecurity and get your water when the day feels almost as hot as hell. Jesus is offering living water that will set her free from the noontime trips to the well, that will set her free from all the men who have used 
and possibly abused her from every other kind of bondage that she knows that makes her get her water at the hottest part of the day. But you know, when people are in bondage, they don't always know how to respond to the offer of freedom. Sometimes people who have an addiction hate their addiction, but they love their addiction. Sometimes people who have been in prison don't know how to live on the outside. This woman is familiar with her bondage, and she's tempted just to stay in her bondage. She's resistant to the freedom that Jesus is offering. She manifests her resistance to freedom by retreating back into her ethnic and cultural identity. That's a boundary that she can hide behind. Okay, sir, I see that you're a prophet. We have our prophets too. Our prophets, yours and mine, don't all agree with each other. Yours say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. Ours say that this mountain, Mount Gerizim, which was in sight of that well, is the right place to worship God. Let's just say that your place and your prophets work for you, and our place and our prophets work for us. And let's just leave it there. And what Jesus does next is really interesting. He doesn't assert that his Jewish identity is better than her Samaritan identity, or even that, yes, as a matter of fact, Jerusalem is the right place to worship. He says that neither group has yet ended up in the spiritual sweet spot. There is a hint of preference for the Jewish understanding based on God's revelation to Israel. You can't sacrifice the truth. We worship what we know says Jesus, and salvation is from the Jews. You can't find it anywhere else. But he doesn't offer her Judaism in place of Samaritanism. And he even suggests that what the Jews know, what the Jews have experienced, what the Jews have received is not the whole story either. Listen to the words of Jesus. The hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And did you hear that he does not say, our Father? He says, the Father. It's not like the Father of the Jews, the Father of anyone, Jew, Samaritan, maybe even Gentile, who will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, not in Jerusalem or Madison. Jesus is offering this woman her place in the family of God and the chance to embrace her identity as a child of God. And she's still scared of that freedom. She still wants to, to, to put it off. Let's wait until the Messiah comes. He will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus says to her, well, that's who you're talking to. I'm the Messiah. This is such an incredible moment. It's one of the, the most amazing moments in the whole Bible when someone is face-to-face -face with Jesus and there's nowhere else to turn. It's either deal with him or turn away from him. And that's the kind of moment that has the power to transform a life if you let Jesus not only show you what he wants to show you, but take you where he wants to take you.
What's kind of interesting in this story is that John doesn't let us stop and savor the moment because this is where the story almost turns into a complete disaster. The, the, the disciples come back at just that moment and, and they come carrying their own cultural and racial and religious and moral baggage with them. They're the ones who stand around kind of chilling the air with their judgmentalism. When they come back, the group hostility comes with them. Prejudice is in the air. No one says anything, but you can feel it. And the woman actually decides not to stick around and deal with that. But notice what happens. Notice two things where the story goes from here. First, notice that the woman leaves, but she intends to come back. This woman this is the most amazing thing in the story, I think. This woman, whose habit is to avoid other people as much as possible, heads back to town looking for her neighbors. Come and see this person I met who told me everything I ever did. Maybe he really is the Messiah. Come and see. Maybe going from house to house. Come and see. Her encounter with the Messiah is so transformative that I think she was probably actually the first Christian missionary. Come and meet this Messiah. Let me offer you a chance to drink the living water that he gave me and that he can give you too. Here's the second thing to notice. Meanwhile, back at the well, the disciples are ready to have lunch and get on with the journey. This probably deserves a separate sermon, and I'm not going to try to squeeze it into this sermon. But at least I want to point it out. Their hearts are not in tune with the great things God was doing in that Samaritan village. And almost exactly at the moment when Jesus is telling them to look up because the fields are ripe for the harvest, the Samaritans from that village are starting to make their way to the well looking for a taste of the living water. And Jesus stayed there for two days. He wasn't welcome in Jerusalem, a place where people thought God ought to be worshipped, but he was wanted in Samaria. Stay with us. That's always the best thing you can say to Jesus. Stay with us. And I guess his disciples probably learned over those two days unless they were fasting, to share some things with Samaritans. But most of all, they shared Jesus with the Samaritans. And maybe they got to see him through their eyes. So this is a pretty long sermon, and I'm going to skip part of the manuscript. So if you're following along, I had a feeling this might happen. All that part in italics, I think it's good. You can read it later. <laughs> But, but I want to say this, uh, that, that I think is important and that I think pertains to our life in today, in America today. If, if white Christians and African American Christians and Asian American Christians and Latino and Latina Christians never experience the Jewish Messiah together and through each other's eyes, then I don't think there's any hope for healing the racial wounds that scar the history and the culture of this country and our churches along with it. 
But if we can be enough like Jesus to come with humility and with need and ask for a drink from others, give me a taste of the living water as you have experienced it. Let me tell you, the Holy Spirit can work with that. That can be a source of living water. So let me just offer you a couple of invitations. Um, First of all, the Howard Thurman Conference coming in April. I don't know if any of you have registered for it, and I know it's a two-day conference, but I have managed to talk Upper House into extending the early registration deadline for Genevans right up until the time of the conference. So you can still register for $75, or if you're a student, for $25. And I just want to say that I think this is going to be an amazing conference. The work of Howard Thurman, which I'm going to give an overview of two weeks from today after church, um, it's brilliant Christian meditation. It's, it's a gospel-shaped tonic for the wounds of racism, and I hope you will not miss that opportunity. And then I'm going to give you maybe the strangest invitation I have ever given as a pastor. I'm going to invite you all to visit another church. Go with your need to a church that isn't uh, of the same race that you're from. And for most of us, that means go to a church that isn't primarily a white church. And don't go with what you have to offer. Go and say, give me a drink. Go and say, show me Jesus the way you experience Jesus. I've been uh, and you don't always have to go at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. I mean, I, it, it is a, the, the big problem that some of the civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. named was that 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning is the most segregated hour in America, and that's still the case. But there are Wednesday evening services. There are Sunday afternoon services. I've been going to a church in my neighborhood called Zion City Church, and the pastor of Zion City Collier McNair visited our church last week, and I've been learning so much. I've been so blessed with experiencing Jesus the way the people that worship in that church experience Jesus, and I think if we just do more of that, you know, it's not they'll all live happily ever after, but it's a step on a journey. If, if you don't take the first step, you never get anywhere on the journey, right? So I don't want to belabor the point. I just want to say that Jesus offers us, when he offers us living water, not just the chance to be receivers, but the chance to be sharers, the chance to be enriched by experiencing him in all of the ways he can be experienced, and by the chance of letting our own identities be shaped by the way the Holy Spirit works through the whole family of God. So... I think maybe the best line in this whole passage is come and see. We don't, what we have to offer, if it's anything, it's not ourselves. It's Jesus. And what we have to receive is Jesus. I guess all I want to do is ask if you can say amen to that. Amen. Can you pray with me? Will you please pray with me? Lord, every single one of us has something to offer you. We have our brokenness and our woundedness and our misunderstanding and our ignorance 
and our own ideas. And most of these things aren't very useful in accomplishing what you want to accomplish. So we offer them to you so that maybe you will take them away from us and fill us instead with the living water that you say can become in each person that drinks it a well of water, a geyser, an upside-down waterfall that overflows to eternal life. Lord, we pray for ourselves. We pray for the woundedness of all of the human communities in our city and in our country. And we pray for your healing, Lord Jesus. We pray that you will bless us and be with us and stay with us. Father, we know that you sent Jesus to gather your whole family. And in his name, we offer these prayers to you.